<laughs> I am delighted to be here in your midst again to declare to you the word of God, the truth about Jesus Christ. I don't need to tell you this because you already know by now, but you have an outstanding pastor and outstanding first lady here in the church. Amen, amen. I told him before we came in here, I'm nervous coming in here to preach because I know that you all have a scholar uh, that stands in this pulpit. I told him, I know why you brought me here. You brought me here to stand so the people can say, when is pastor coming back? <laughs> He'll be back real soon, but I appreciate you letting me stretch out a little bit to declare the word of God and trusting me with the people that God has put you uh, to shepherd. My wife and family are here. I was just a week away from them. They were in Illinois while I was here, and then they came here while I was in Birmingham. And so we really just have seen each other this morning. And uh, for real, for real, I got in late, late last night, uh, and they were already in the bed sleeping, but it's good to see them uh, this morning. And my wife's mother and her brother are also here. Amen. I'm delighted for their presence as well. Mom just celebrated a birthday. I'm not going to say how old she is. I'll let her tell it. But <laughs> I'm grateful that God has her here with us. Uh, and giving her another trip around the sun. I'm ready to preach. There's a glorious text that I want you to hear from Colossians chapter 1. And I know you've got a pastor here who's already preached this, but allow me to reverberate in your hearing what you may already know. And perchance there's someone here without a relationship with Christ. I hope to introduce you to him by the time we have finished preaching. But Colossians Chapter number one, if it is your custom to stand, uh, would you do so now as the word of God uh, is read? Beginning our reading in verse number 15. Have you made it there? Listen in for the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. I just want to talk about Christ above all. You need another topic. I want to tell you Jesus only and always. 
I, uh, I knew that this kind of sermon would fit right in here at a place like Forest Baptist. But it's something that I have not grown to take for granted for. The Lord has blessed me to travel to many churches across this land. And here's my assertion, my evaluation. I feel the greatest need for the modern-day Christian church is to put Jesus Christ at the center of it. Now, I say that sad at the fact that in our churches, yes, even in our lives, Christ has been moved, removed from the center position from our center focus and have been put on the periphery of our concern. I've been in many churches, pastored some of them, and I mean no disrespect, but things like dwindling budgets or dilapidated buildings or demanding bills that come every month seem to dominate our concern and take our attention from Christ. If you listen to some of the music, again, I mean no disrespect, but some of the music that we sing in Christian worship uh, moves no further than the here and the now. I've been listening in, and I see that the scope of our worship extends no further than our immediate concern. There's no eternal value in the things we quibble over. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a Presbyterian minister over 60 years ago, wrote a sermon that he preached on his CBS radio program. He tried to answer the question of what it would look like if Satan ever took control of a city. Listen to what he says. He says, all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at one another. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You see, my brothers and sisters, it appears that even 60 years later, Barnhouse was right about his prediction. As I stand here to assert that the greatest threat to the Christian church is not persecution for our faith. It is not a lack of financial resources to carry out ministry. It is not even a dwindling membership. The greatest threat is a religion that tries to make it without Jesus. Uh, Satan delights, my brothers and sisters, when our attention is taken off Christ to be put on non-essential concerns. Whenever Christ is removed from the center of our worship, removed from the center of our lives, Satan rejoices because that's been his modus operandi from the very beginning to take the place of God and his son, Jesus Christ. The text will show us, however, that we've read today that because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he does, he not only deserves a prominent position in our worship, he actually deserves a preeminent position in our worship. 
Y'all not hearing what I'm saying. I said, Jesus don't need to just be popular. Jesus needs to be preeminent. We make much to do about Jesus, but is he Lord in your life? My brothers and sisters, it's an important question to raise, and I think that's what Paul is trying to get this Colossian church to understand. For he desires that these Colossian Christians who would name the name of Christ and listen in to this apostle, that he wants them to understand you desperately need now to rejoice in Christ as Savior and reverence him as Lord. That's why he's writing this letter. In fact, he has some tasks before him for Paul is dealing with Colossian Christians who right now are in the midst of a crumbling, collapsing culture. They're in the midst of a sick, secular society where people are coming forth with other religious festivals saying, hey, do this, do this to be saved, or don't do this, don't do this to be saved. When in fact, we know that we're not saved by anything we do or have not done. We're saved by the grace of God. They come up with different regulations, rules, extra laws about eating and drinking. And Paul is writing, them to, writing to them to help them to understand strong Christian doctrine so that they will delight in doctrine that is the motivation for their duty. In other words, I'm saying what you believe will determine how you behave. He writes, so that they can stand against Vain philosophies and human traditions. Seems like the Colossian church was dealing with a lot of what we deal with today. For even now, there are vain philosophies. There are people who are attempting to exalt themselves against the knowledge of the Lord, saying things like Jesus was not real. He could not have existed. And this Bible that we read is not real. It's not verifiable. It's just man-made. There are people right now who are telling you ways that you can perform and do enough good to be saved. When in fact, I've already reminded you, let me say again, you are not not saved by your own righteousness. You are saved by the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God that looked beyond all of your faults and saw your need. You needed a savior. And he has appeared. In fact, Paul is trying to help them to understand that the right way of living in this world is to focus on heavenly things rather than on earthly things. For those who belong to the Lord have to leave earthly, mundane, terrestrial concerns and put your mind on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm, you've got to live in a godly way if you intend to please Christ. And I think this is how the structure begins to unfold. For he has all of these things to do, but he does not break in immediately with admonition. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, that Paul's first modus operandi, his first item on the agenda, rather, is to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. Uh, he praises God because in the midst of this crumbling and collapsing culture, in the midst of this sick secular society, there are a few people there who have dared to put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I thank 
God for you. When I think about your faith, when I think about how the gospel has taken root in your heart, but it doesn't just stop in your heart, you began to spread it from your lips and your reputation precedes you. Thank God that you are saved. And my brothers and sisters, let me pause and park parenthetically. I love to come to church on a Sunday morning to worship with the redeemed of the Lord because it reminds me no matter how bad the world is around me that God has not left himself without a witness. I thank God for you. After all the hell that you've been through, after all you had to live through in your community, I thank God after how rocky your past was that you heard the gospel preached and like my grandma used to say, I came to Jesus as I was, really worn and sad and found in him a resting place. And he has made me glad. <laughs> Am I talking to a room of some glad people who can thank God? Now, you don't need to just shout over cars and clothes and cash and creature comforts and commodities. You ought to praise God that you're saved. Because you know what it took to save you now. If you are one of those who have been in church for a minute and you forgot where the Lord has brought you from, I can understand how you can sit there and not say nothing. But if you know that he had to reach from the gutter and lift you to the uttermost, if you know that God had to cut through some mess and some garbage to come and find you, you ought to wave your hands, open up your mouth, and say, thank you that I'm saved. I didn't mean to get caught up there, but I just got to thinking about the goodness of Jesus. Oh, yes, I'm saved <laughs> by his power divine, saved to new life sublime. Life is now sweet, and my joy is complete. He moves then from praise for people who have put their trust in Christ, and in the midst of this culture that they have to live in, it's appropriate that he moves from praise to prayer. For Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 13, Paul breaks right into a prayer for this Colossian church that God would then keep them saved, that, that God would continue to work on them and sanctify them. How are they to be saved? He prays for them that they would have knowledge of the will and wisdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying you cannot work like you should. You cannot walk as you should unless you know God's will for your life. My brothers and sisters, watch this. We often miss God's will for our life because we do not focus on Christ. In fact, we cannot focus on Christ in our sinful state. Our minds are distorted. Our hearts are darkened and our will is dead. But when Christ comes to make you alive, he gives you a mind that can know him, a heart that can love him, and a will that will obey him. Thank God I'm saved. So pray for me that I would continue to grow up in Christ, that I would continue to know the will of God so that I can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. Are y'all still praying with me? 
And that's why I think he moves to verse number 13. I think verse number 13 is the key to all of this. Let me see if I can read it again, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Hallelujah, yes. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of the sins. Are y'all here with me? That's good news. There's some stuff that I have done that people know about and they are quick to remind me about it. But thank God that when he saves you, he forgives you. He wipes your slate clean. He gives you a brand new start. That's good news, my brothers and sisters, that you have been delivered. How is one to live in light of deliverance? I like the movement that Paul makes because I think that by the time we're done, we can answer some of these questions. For Paul moves from praise to prayer to the text we've read today. It's poetic prose. <laughs> now, 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 the sophisticated stanzas that make up the verses that we have read have led some scholars to feel like this was not something that Paul has written with his own hand. In fact, they would suggest that this was a common song sung in the life of the early church that Paul was familiar with. And so in order to build upon this doctrine, he pulls a song that they sang about in worship and puts it in his letter. Y'all, I moved too fast for you. Let me rewind and say that again. He probably did not write this with his own hand, but what he did was he reached through the songs that they sang when they came to church and put one of the songs they sang when they came to church in the epistle so that the people can have right doctrine that it would inform right duty. Y'all still missing me. <laughs> Let me say this again. They did not sing about in their worship cars, clothes, and cash. They did not sing in their worship about me, myself, and I. You listen to Christian music, it's all about me, me, me. Get yourself out of the way. You didn't wake yourself up this morning. You didn't die for yourself. In fact, if you had to save yourself, you would still be lost. I don't want to come to church to hear more about me. I want to see Jesus and he sang about Jesus and use one of the songs they sang about Jesus and put it in the, in the epistle. That's all I'm trying to say. It would be good when we came to church that worship would not be about me, but it would be about him. Uh, are y'all praying with me here? The structure here even lends to this evidence that maybe this is non-Pauline authorship for in the first part of the chapter, Paul is speaking in first person, mainly verses 1 through 14. Right after the text we read, verses 21 through 23, he's talking in third person. But right here in the middle, he interjects this hymn and talking in the second person. In other words, he's talking about we and us and moves to talking about you. But the difference between the two is what's there in the middle. It's all about Jesus. The worship centered on Jesus. The difference is made by Jesus. 
I love it. I love that they sang about Jesus. And in fact, that's what Paul is doing in this hymn. He goes into deep admiration before he goes into deep admonition. He wants them to see that life must center on Jesus because life does not exist without Jesus. That's why there are two points. I'm going to raise them up, holler a minute, and I'm going to be right back in my seat. There are two movements in this text that I think we ought to notice that when he proclaims Christ, when he's arguing for Christ above all, he makes this case that he is the Lord of creation and he's also the Lord of redemption. Look with me right here in this text. He's the Lord of creation. Look at what the verses say, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He starts with two assertions and then he begins to prove his point of why he made the claim that he's made. Look again at what he claims about Jesus, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Hallelujah, yes. He is the one, the image of the invisible God. He is the one that manifests the presence of God. In other words, this word image uh, is a word icon in the Greek language. It means uh, a direct representation. Better yet, it means a manifestation of the object it's supposed to be representing. What I'm saying is whenever you see Jesus, you're looking at God. <laughs> that, that, that when Jesus shows up, he's bringing all of God with him into the situation. Y'all not ready to shout with me just yet. But maybe you have to understand that this is what is affirmed by the Hebrew writer. In Hebrews chapter number 1, verse number 3, listen to what the Bible says. that He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Oh, my brothers and sisters, and that's why we worship Jesus. Because Jesus ain't just a prophet. Jesus is not one of the homeboys that we kick it with every now and then. Jesus is more than just your best friend. Jesus is the Lord. He is God all by himself. I wish I had a witness here. He doesn't need us. In fact, he is the firstborn of everything created. Watch this word, firstborn. It does not refer to one who is born from flesh. No. This word firstborn is not used for primogeniture. It's used to describe privilege. In other words, Jesus stands above everybody else. Uh, can I say that one more time? Jesus is above everybody else. Uh, your best friend, your mama, your grandma, your daddy. I know they're the most important people in your life here on earth, but I'm trying to tell you this. Excuse me, there's somebody more important than them, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. He is above all. Let's see why. Let's see why Paul begins to continue his assertion, or rather, an explanation. He bases this claim on this fact that Jesus is the unique manifestation of God, for he has created all things. In fact, look at this preposition for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible invisible thrones hallelujah dominions rulers authorities all things were created through him is that in your bible and for him <laughs> in other words it don't exist without Jesus. 
and the ultimate end is Jesus, that all of this is headed to him. Uh, my brothers and sisters, I like this. He brings out the point of why Jesus is to be worshipped as Lord of creation. For he is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that what we read in the Bible? Look at John chapter number 1, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Yeah, here we see the uniqueness of Christ. He, this is high Christology. It's saying that Jesus uh, made us. We did not make him. Uh, now, this is important, my brothers and sisters. I learned this lesson. I was a religious studies major at the University of Tennessee. And one day I went into a novelty shop to do some shopping for some things to put into my dorm room. Now, there was a lot of different artifacts there from the different religions. And so there was a woman who was walking around and happened to be holding a statue of a Buddha. Now, something happened. That Buddha slipped out of that woman's hand and fell to the floor and shattered. Now, I did not say this aloud to her, but I sure thought it in my head. I said, hmm, what a shame that now she has to pick her God up. But whenever I fall, my God picks me up. I wish I had somebody here that could shout about the fact that you didn't make him, but he made you. He is large and in charge. He is the maker of all the earth. He's the Lord of creation. I like this, my brothers and sisters, that he is the maker, but he's also the master. <laughs> Look at it. The Bible says he has created everything. That means thrones, rulers, authorities, different dominions. I don't care how powerful a power here on the earth seems to be. There is a power greater than him. Now, <laughs> I wasn't going to go here, but y'all didn't put this man in the White House, and so I've got to say something about it. <laughs> I don't mean no disrespect. I've just got to say something about it. We have been scratching our heads, especially some of you who have lived 50, 60 years ago, because while it seems like in many ways we have progressed in our country, the recent rhetoric has made it feel like we have regressed in our country. There are people trying to take us back and make America great again. My brothers and sisters, and the language that comes from the lips of people who are supposed to be in charge is daunting and sometimes discouraging. But let me tell you, I hope that we don't have four years, and I sure hope we don't have another four years of that. But even if we do, I want to declare to you the truth that he has a term limit and so did Hitler and so did Stalin and so did any other ruler who tried to shake his fist in rebellion to the Lord the Lord is strong and mighty the Lord is the maker of the heavens and the earth the Lord has all power in his hands and though rulers have a term limit the Lord has no term limits he shall reign forever that's why you can obey people who have rule over you 
because their authority ultimately doesn't come from them. It comes from God. Y'all don't believe me yet here. Now, Romans chapter 13, number one says that let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except that which comes from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Next time you hear something when you turn on CNN, MSNBC, don't cry, don't complain, just say, God, get your boy. Get your boy, you did this. <laughs> he is the maker, he is the master but he also is the maintainer. I like this. The Bible says that he holds it all together. In him, all things hold together. He, he is holding it together. The Bible would give us even more specific language that says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word that created the world is the same word that sustains the world. And you never have to run around saying the sky is falling as long as Jesus is on the throne. I'm trying to get off of this point. I'm really trying to move on. But I've come to testify that's how I made it this far. I did not make it because I was holding myself together. I did not make it because I was strong enough to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I did not make it because my intellect got me so far. I made it because Jesus has been holding me together. I wonder if I'm talking to a church of some people who don't mind putting Jesus at the center of your life, at the center of your worship, because you recognize if he had not kept you when he was keeping you, your whole world would have fallen apart. You would have lost your mind. But thank God that you're still here in your right mind, still have joy, still have strength, still have peace of mind, still have a shout and a praise on the inside because Jesus is holding you together. He's holding me together. Oh, I love this. He's large and in charge. He is the Lord of creation, but it gets gooder. I said it gets gooder. Gooder and gooder. Not only is he the Lord of creation, but the text would go on to explain to us that he's the Lord of redemption. Are y'all still walking with me here in this text that, that he is the Lord of redemption? Like the first stanza, Paul makes two assertions and then begins to give his reasoning for why he makes his claim. Well, look at how the verses continue that in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I like this, my brothers and sisters, the head of the body, the church. If there is any greater reason for why the church should have Christ at the center of our worship, for why we should live our lives with this slogan, Jesus only and always, because redemption is in mind here. And we know if it had not been for the work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, we would still be lost in our sin. But I like this, this metaphor that's used, we're the body of Christ, and he is the head of that body. It is a metaphor that 
would be often used in scripture when referring to the redemptive role of the head. Paul uses this same kind of metaphor. For in Ephesians chapter number 5, verse number 23, the Bible says, For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. <laughs> oh, that's good news, my brothers and sisters, that we have a redemptive head in the man, Christ Jesus. But not only that, when it talks about the dynamic aspects of the, bi of the body, our interdependence, our codependence, Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 comes to mind. It says that you should speak the truth in love. And we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head of uh, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow up in love. This is good news. Now, that's not all. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 begins to... Uh, Continue, rather, 1 Corinthians 15 argues further for the nature of the body in the life of a believer. The independence, 1 Corinthians 12 is what I mean to say, the interdependence of the parts of the body. It says that not all of us are the same thing, that, that one can be uh, a hand and one can be an eye and one can be the foot. And when we operate in our lane as God has directed us, then the whole body is made stronger. Uh, all of this is to show us, my brothers and sisters, that Paul is arguing that the church is not a dead organization that just needs hierarchical structure. The church is actually a living organism that needs a head to survive. And my pastor, the late Reverend Alex T. Bond Jr. used to say anything with two heads is a freak of nature. The church does not have two heads. The church has one head. Uh, and a lot of times in our congregations, we come in here with the question, who's in charge? And people are quick to get out of their lane because their selves are at the dominant center of their concern. But if you would just do your part and follow the direction of the head, not the pastor because he has to look up to. The head is Jesus Christ. It's his body. Y'all not feeling me just yet. Uh, in fact, this is how Paul would apply this. I'm almost in my seat now. This is how Paul applies this text. In fact, he uses this hymn to build upon doctrine for the later half of Colossians. And that's why in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and my flesh is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Look at the possessive pronoun he gives. It's his body, the church. He is the head of it. I like this because no matter what attack the devil would ever wage against the church, his plots are not stronger than God's plan. God has made his son Jesus the head. I 
Psalm 2 comes to mind. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth and the rulers set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, you're sitting there trying to box with God and shake your fists in the face of God and your arms just ain't long enough, baby. You cannot box with God, nor can you rebel against God long enough. Oh, my brothers and sisters, thank God that he's large and in charge and the head of his body. And the devil will come. The demons will come. People will even try to work on the inside to tear this thing apart. But God is on the throne forever. He reigns forever. He rules forever. He leads and directs forever. He protects forever. He died for the church in his own body, was raised for the church, living right now, interceding for the church. We ain't going nowhere. We're like baby's kids. <laughs> we don't die, we multiply. We keep on growing. Yet, there are people who are distracted from this main mission. And the devil is pleased. There's a British philosopher and author, C.S. Lewis, who writes the Screwtape Letters. It is a conversation between the devil, whose name is Screwtape, and his nephew, Wormwood. Listen to how he says how to sabotage the mission of the church. He says, the church is a fertile field if you just keep them bickering over details, structure, organization, money, property, personal hurts, and misunderstandings. One thing you must prevent, don't ever let them look up and see the banners flying. For if they look up and see the banners flying, you've lost them forever. <laughs> Are y'all still praying with me? What he's saying is, Hey, keep them focused on petty, non-essential concerns. Don't ever let them look up and see the glory of God because if they fix their eyes on the glory of God, devil ain't nothing you can do with them. And I wonder if I'm talking to a church of some people who don't mind worshiping Jesus because you learn to lift up your eyes from petty concerns and see the glory of God. Come on, I wonder if there's somebody here that can say, you can't make me doubt him. Because I know too much about him. I've seen the glory of God. I wonder if there's somebody here who looked up and saw God in his glory high and lifted up. Oh, and if you see God in glory, the only thing to do is to glory. You have to glorify in him. You have to rejoice. You have to celebrate him. Is there anybody who can look up and see Jesus? Oh, I've seen him. I've seen him. He's the firstborn from the dead. <laughs> he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The Greek language would have us to think that this is all one thing, that the firstborn is actually the one who is from the dead. I like this. The beginning has an idea of 
a temporal connotation. In other words, Jesus is first in line. <laughs> but not only is he first, uh, it has an authoritative connotation. He is the one who receives the inheritance. This is the idea that's carried forth in the beginning and the word firstborn, that he is the beginning. In other words, ain't nobody ever died like Jesus. Nobody ever got up like Jesus. Now, there are other people who were brought back from the dead. Uh, I could call on some witnesses, but they're not here right now. Uh, the widow of Nain's son. She was on her way to bury her only son. And the Bible says that they came encounter in an encounter with Jesus. Jesus simply touched what was around the boy. He touched the buyer, and the boy got up, and life was restored to him. Y'all not feeling me just yet. There was a man named Jairus. His only daughter was sick to the point of death. He had come to find Jesus and said, come back to my house. Because if you can make it back, then my daughter will live. While they were on the way, somebody came from the house and said, it's already too late. You got to watch people who will alert without having been assigned and come and tell you it's too late. Oh, because the God I serve is never too late for him. He may not come when you want him to come, but he will always be on time. He shows up and there are people in the room who are laughing at the Lord. And I don't know if this is what hell is all about, but Jesus does not perform a miracle in their presence. He puts them out of the room. And my brothers and sisters, you need to learn how to get rid of some stuff that will distract you from what God is trying to do in your life. You need to learn how to put that stuff on the periphery and put Jesus as a main concern. Because with one word, Jesus can speak and man will lay down and die. With one word, Jesus will speak and man will get up and live. He said, little girl, Talithikum, rise up. Hallelujah, yes. And that little girl got up. Y'all still not feeling me. There was a man by the name of Lazarus who was sick to the point of death. Oh, yes, they sent word to Jesus saying, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. He said, Lazarus, oh, yes, is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad. So that you can see the glory of the Lord. Mm. He tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. I like this, my brothers and sisters. They take Jesus to where they laid Lazarus. And Jesus says, take away the stone. See, there are some things that are keeping us from being productive in the life that Jesus is trying to give us. And I'm here to tell somebody, take away the stone. Take away the stone from your heart. Take away the stone from your mind. Remove the barriers so that you can hear Jesus saying, Lazarus, rise up and walk. I like how the old preacher said it. They said that Jesus had so much power in his voice that he had to call Lazarus by name. Because if he had just said, get up, then Abraham would have gotten up. Isaac would have gotten up. Jacob would have gotten up. But he said, Lazarus, rise up. And somebody here 
should be glad about the fact that one day when you were lost, in fact, you weren't just lost, you were dead in trespasses and sin, but you heard the voice of the Lord saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He got up, but can I keep on preaching? Because if you want to know, does Jesus have power? You can ask the widow named son. Uh, no you can't because he died again you can ask Jairus' daughter uh, no you cannot because she died again you cannot ask Lazarus because he died again but when it came to Jesus he was dead yes he was can I preach like I feel it in Forest Baptist Church he died yes he did he died yes he did the grave through fits of cosmic epilepsy and vomited up its dead he died until the dead stage of protest march and marched around the streets of Jerusalem he died until the centurion said surely this must be the son of God he died but that ain't the end of the story they hung him high they stretched him right he hung his head in the locks of his shoulders and he died they took him from the cross and put him in a grave he stayed there all day Friday and all day Saturday but y'all know how we do it can you help me close my sermon and shout early I said early while the dew was on the roses early Sunday morning he got up with power in his hands do you know he's got power power to walk right power to talk right power to get you up from sin and shame power to give you brand new life and take you back to him so what you're gonna sing about when you come to church I'm so glad I can come to church and sing down at the cross where my Savior died down wherefore cleansing from sin I cried there to my heart was the blood applied glory to his name I am so wondrously saved from sin Jesus so sweetly abides within there at the cross where he took me in glory to his name oh precious fountain that saves from sin I am so glad I have entered in there Jesus saves me and he keeps me clean glory to his name I got to close here but is there a church that can help me say glory to his name glory to his name there to my heart was the blood applied glory 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 glory
Come on, let's let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise for the man of God. The man of God who has given the word of God to the people of God. Amen. Let the church say amen. Let the church say amen one more time. Amen. Amen. Pastor Sykes only gave you half of our conversation in the hallway. He told you that he said, I brought him here so y'all be waiting for me to come. The other half of that conversation, I said, nah, bruh. I said, after you preach today, they'll be like, why don't you bring him back next week? <laughs> Pastor, thank you for your word. Thank you for preaching Christ, Christ crucified, because he is preeminent. That is the plea today. If you're here today in worship, there has not been a moment where you have surrendered all to Jesus and he's become preeminent in your life. Some of the indicators, if Jesus is preeminent in your life, that means you love him today. You didn't just love him back when you was a child and got baptized and you've been living like hell ever since, but you love him today. You actually read his word. You actually pray. You actually care about the things of God. That is an indication that you actually love Jesus today. If Jesus is preeminent in your life today, then you have something to say. And that is glory. Hallelujah. But you may be here today and there have not been a moment where you surrendered all. You continue to live for yourself. You continue to live for your own glory. You're always in drama and chaos. You always argue with somebody about something. But it always has you as the center. You're always in the middle of everything. Then Jesus is not the center of your life. Because you're still the center. But praise be to God that he is able to open up blind eyes. Give hearing to deaf ears. And to soften hard hearts. And my prayer this morning is that Jesus would touch someone's heart today and he would transfer them out of their dominion of darkness into his marvelous light this morning. And that we will see our need for Christ Jesus. And we will see our need to repent and to turn towards Jesus by faith alone, through grace alone. We will say, Lord, please forgive me for living for myself. Please forgive me for my sin. Please forgive me for my disobedience. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he is the savior of the world. I believe that he did come to save me from my sin, not their sin. He came to save me from my sin, from my disobedience, from my rebellion, and that he died on Calvary's cross, but he got up early Sunday morning with all power in his hand and he's sitting right now on the right hand side of the father and he's coming back again for all those who love him you can be saved today through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ you can come and, and talk to one of our deacons and we can pray with you and show you from the scriptures what must you do to be saved or you may be here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you just know that Jesus has not really been preeminent in your life. 
and you've been distracted by the affairs of this world you you're upset because somebody ain't speak to you right you're mad because uh, you're frustrated at someone's behavior and you're distracted about the the things of this world and you're not looking up to jesus and you just want to repent or you want someone to pray with you or for you then you can come whatever various issues of life may be on you right now and you just want someone to pray with you pray for you then you can come or you may be here today and the lord has confirmed that forest baptist church is the place where you should be the place that you should call home to join this fellowship of the saints so whether your need is salvation prayer a church membership you can come down and pray and talk to one of our deacons one of our young men as we all stand to sing our closing song for worship